Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Shibe Sports Presents. My name is Johnny Goodtimes. I'm Reed. And uh, we are, I don't know how we scored this one. We had to pull some strings, but we have got the one and only Brian Michael with us here from wow. Vintage Sports. Hello. We did it. We made it. We this made it. Watching the store. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so we are talking to Brian, uh, not about his uh, his illustrious website, Phillies Nation, uh, or really, maybe maybe Reese got some questions about the store, but um, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, he does. But primarily, we are talking about Brian's book. Uh, that he put together with uh, Drew, uh, who a lot of you uh, might remember from the store, worked there for a long time, and Andrew Weicker, is that pronounced right, Brian? Yes. And uh, the book is The Philadelphia Eagles, and it is um, one of those Arcadia books that you see all over the place, you know, throughout the city and throughout the surrounding you know, this neighborhood, that neighborhood, and, and uh, you know, the old rail lines and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I guess you just kind of saw this opportunity from how in the world was there not an Eagles version of this, probably the most popular local, like, mm -hmm. you know, thing in the community, and somehow is the only thing there wasn't a book for. Yeah, there was one for the Phillies, the athletics, uh, old Connie Mack Stadium, um, and we were selling a lot of those books at the store, and we were always kind of thinking, oh, what Eagles book could we sell alongside the rest of our vintage merchandise? And there really wasn't many history books. You know, there was, of course, Ray Diddy's Eagles Encyclopedia, but that's not really so accessible uh, to everyone. Uh, which is a great resource. We we leaned on it a lot. But yeah, there was no quick and easy history of the Eagles. And we figured, you know what? Um, we sell a lot of the Phillies and A's ones. We could probably do the same for the Eagles and also, you know, have a good time putting together this kind of collection of photos. So that's really what uh, was the driving force behind it. Just the fact that, like you said, no one's done it yet and it it needs to be done. So we did it. And it was a lot of fun along the way. Did so when you, you're thinking was, about – Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to ask – Reef, Reef, you go first. This is just like that's one right. of our regular meetings, folks. Yeah, this is yeah <laughs> that's right. That's right. Always talking over me, you know? Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, so for someone that's never – is this the first time you've done a book, or is this, is, this, is, this is the third? Uh, good question. Good question. I actually did do a, another book before – Mm -hmm. um, which was a recipe book uh, through Phillies Nation. Essentially, we had readers send in uh, recipes. So it was just a tailgating kind of companion of uh, stuff you can make at home, stuff you can cook at the ballparks. Uh, so that was kind of my first foray into publishing, and that came out uh, probably like eight or nine years ago. And, well, you know, this one's a photo book too, so in neither – instance did I really have to do much writing right? <laughs> more editing both uh collections so mm -hmm. yes uh, the, this is my second one technically nice okay cool what was something you learned about the eagles that you didn't know going into the book um well, there was a lot I mean a lot of just 
learning players, right? Like I know all the Eagles in the Eagles Hall of Fame now. I know most of the all pro players. I know most of the general managers. Um, I would say the most interesting and fun part, honestly, was learning about the owners, the owners of the Eagles, um, you know, starting with Burt Bell. Then we had uh, Lex Thompson, right? Then they, they traded franchises with Pittsburgh. Um, then we had the Happy 100, which was a group of 100 investors that owned the Eagles for a long time. So that was kind of an interesting uh, setup. Um, but then we had uh, Jerry Woolman. Leonard Toast, Norman Brayman, and finally Jeff Lurie, who is by far the most boring of all the owners that we've had <laughs> so far. Like him right. compared to the rest of the crew that have owned the Eagles, it's like night and day. He is a professional. He brought the Eagles, you know, up a level into the 21st century. But the rest of the crew, I mean, just stories upon stories about how they made their money how they blew their money, how they managed the Eagles. Um, like it was like a toy, like it was something fun, you know, for them. They didn't really take it uh, so seriously as a business all the time. Um, mm -hmm. So just learning these huge personalities. This, this sounds, this sounds oddly familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the ownership. <laughs> it goes right to your head. We're hoping ball. that a Jeffrey Lurie type takes over Shive at some point. So, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. These so the whimsical, uh, half-cocked yeah. current owners yeah. uh, don't just treat it as a toy, but as a profession. Yes. Now these other owners were all independently rich, and that was <laughs> that's a big difference, and that's probably part <laughs> of why they were so crazy, but also, of course, how it led to them buying the Eagles. Um, the past couple of times the Eagles have been sold, it was for a record amount for pro sports franchises. So it's always, uh, it's never a bad investment, even when you have people like Norman Brayman kind of driving it into the ground. Um, so uh, these stories of these guys, these rich guys, these playboy guys are just nuts. Just spending money on everything, gambling, booze, divorces, mm -hmm charities like it runs the gamut and yeah one day i hope to be that wealthy and be yeah. able to make so many <laughs> yeah yeah um, just so, uh, yeah, you know start, start a fight start fights at bookbinders yeah, yeah it, it was totally uh, insane so yeah i mean that's even before we get into the players into the ups and downs of the seasons to the fans um it really kind of starts uh, from the top down with this franchise mm -hmm. Um, and there's never been this like over imposing force like, um, you know, Lombardi or Hallis sure, or sure. the Maras or, or Marshall down in, in Washington. So it's all the Eagles have always been kind of like this middling franchise. And mm -hmm. again, I think Jeffrey Lurie has really helped elevate them a lot more. Um, so in one sense, it, it helped me appreciate the current owner ownership, but the stories were hilarious. So I would go and, you know, for the research, read a lot of their biographies and autobiographies and it's just hilarious. It's just real. It's yeah. stuff that we would never think of getting into, you know, being property developers or uh, owning car dealerships and then owning a, a pro sports franchise. I mean, Johnny can relate. He's a, a franchise. Yeah, owner, he's a sport. Yeah. He's know. a franchise. Owner, yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to Jeff last night, you know, about our common <laughs> the uh, club. Yeah. Jeff and jo Josh the, Harris, you guys all had dinner. Yeah. Do we have any, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, 
like going back, do we have any, cause I feel like our coaches are kind of the same way. There's not many, like, do we have any really interesting coaches along the way? Cause I feel like the, the last couple have been kind of just regular, like milk toast type guys, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great uh, question. You're right. Um, you know, probably it hasn't been since Buddy Ryan have we had a right. real personality. And that was funny too, because him and Norman Brayman would always clash. Um, he would call him the man in Paris because Brayman always lived in his villa. <laughs> um, but yeah, Buddy Ryan, but even before him, uh, Joe Kucharich, uh, who uh, was the coach in the 60s, he was coaching one year. Jerry Wolman bought the team. And then they ended up giving the coach a 15-year contract. So imagine that, you know, 15 years, you're going to be the same coach uh, for the team. It only took one or two years for this guy, Joe, to have a falling out with everybody, <laughs> the media, the fans. You know, the team was bad. He traded away some of their best players like Tommy McDonald, and everyone hated him. But Joe, who had this 15 – your contract was just like, you know what? Here it is. I'm still the coach, no matter what you say. <laughs> um, and really flaunted it. And it, but it just kept getting worse. The fans would fly banners around Franklin Field. They hung effigies. They had pep rallies, all to just get Joe fired. And there's a, actually wow. a good picture in the book that says, you know, it's a picture from one of the unions holding up a sign that says fire Joe, right? They, they were just as uh, into it as we are nowadays. And um, this all kind of coincided <laughs> with the snowballs at Santa game, right? Sure. So we all remember the kind of uh, botched halftime festivities where we had a drunken Santa come on the field and fans pelted them with snowballs. Well, they were kind of just taking out their aggression on uh, Joe and the team um, and the season that had gone to nothing. Um, so he was a real character and everyone hated him, right? You yeah. had Buddy Ryan, everyone loved. You had Joe, everyone hated. Um, and then even going further back, their first coach, Lud Ray, interesting fella. He pretty much introduced um, film, film watching and, and watching game film and studying game film. That was a huge part of him as a, a head coach and what he brought to the table, as well as changing, you know, the offense, right? He was more into spreading the field out, the forward pass. Again, back in like the 20s and 30s, it was three yards in a cloud of dust type, you know, right. rugby <laughs> style football. Mm -hmm. And Lud Ray was fairly innovative at his, at his time, you know, in the 30s. So I thought he was a pretty interesting guy too, because um, he came, uh, from the college ranks because a real theme of the book is that Philadelphia has always been a football town, right? We love football here, but it's only been since 1960 that it's been an Eagles town. I mean, we all know at the store, uh, the Eagles are by far our best seller of the four major sports teams, but it wasn't always that way, you know, in before 1960 and that championship, and that team and that season that was really kind of, you know, exciting for fans, just like, you know, 2017, um, people didn't care as much about pro football. It was the, the A's, right, Philadelphia Athletics, then the Phillies for a little bit. But college and high school football was always big here in mm. Philly, right? Penn was good. Temple was good. 
some of the surrounding teams like Lafayette and Penn State, of course, um, were big. And even high school, right? The Thanksgiving Day rivalry games that we've all probably been to in freezing cold weather. Um, sure. Huge, right? Since the 1800s. And the Eagles didn't come till 1933, and they weren't good till 1960. So the first, I would say, full chapter and a little bit of the second chapter really talks about football in Philly before uh, the Eagles, which was, you know, as big as it, as it still is, it's just that the Eagles have kind of grown up uh, to take over some of that fandom. Yeah, I mean, you think about Franklin Field being built in the 1890s to hold – you know, 60,000 people for pen games, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. like right. now there's, you know, a few thousand that show up for pen games, but it goes to show you how much the, 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 the things have completely flipped. I mean, it used to be like, I think Brian's saying like, you know, I, I guess even Brian, when they won in, in 48 and 49, um, the Eagles still weren't, probably that probably wasn't front page of the bulletin or the inquirer right like it was still sort of a third fourth tier sport at that point yeah yeah and the phillies um were starting to get good with the whiz kids teams right around that same time um yeah it, it just wasn't that big of a draw and even those championship games um i think one game snowed and one game rained so people didn't really show up for them even right there were crowds and people were excited but Nowhere near um, what happened in that 1960 uh, season. You know, this, it took the Steagles, which we can talk about at some point, for them to even get their first winning team. That was 10 years after they started. Um, and then once the 60 season came, um, it was a lot like actually 2017 because they started the season kind of okay, win, win a game, lose a game. But then the kicker hit this amazing field goal, Bobby Walston just like Jake Elliott hit that 61 yarder versus the giants. And then everyone kind of thought, you know what, maybe uh, this could be the year. Maybe we've got luck on our side. And after that game, which I think was in Cleveland, um, attendance shot up at Franklin field in 1960. And then in 61 and 62, it went up even more. So it was, yeah, averaging, you know, 20,000 before that 60 team and then 50,000 after that 60 team. And that's part of the reason probably they gave that guy, uh, Joe, a huge contract too, because attendance was, was so high, but yeah, it, it was amazing how it really just turned with that team more than anything. Right. It's because of Joe, the, it's because of me, Joe, the coach. Yeah. <laughs> coach K. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, but then sadly the, uh, the, the Eagles and kind of a lot of our local teams have this, they don't seem to build a system that continues to be good. They seem to win one in a vacuum and then sort of go back to uh, mediocrity. And it really took until Dick Vermeil came here in the seventies. Uh, was there anything that you learned about that whole situation with Vermeil and Jaws and like that's that team that the, the, I kind of feel like that was probably the second team that the city fell in love with after that 1960 team. Yeah, and just real quick to kind of reiterate what you were saying, the team was sold after the 48 season. So they had a new owner going into the 49 season, and then they won the championship again. So, you know, talk about lack of consistency. The owner wins the championship and then sells the team. Um, but, yes, the Dick Vermeil um, saga was a, was a different one, and it was interesting, and it was kind of like the 93 Phillies in that they didn't win at all, but they still have this kind of – 
special place in our hearts because um, part of it was the team itself. Um, it wasn't the most talented team. Um, the coach before Dick Vermeil um, traded away a lot of the draft picks. So you had this like ragtag group of players, misfits, outcasts that Dick Vermeil brought together and just ran them into the ground. I mean, Dick Vermeil was just, you know, overboard in everything. And that's what caused them to retire so early because of the stress that he caused himself. But yeah, they were a team that really kind of came together. They didn't have the talent. They weren't this flashy team that you thought would win the championship at the beginning of the season. But bringing in Ron Jaworski in particular, that was a big part of the chemistry on the team and talking to um, some of the um, old players and, and Ray Dittinger and the Eagles old photographer, um, Ed Mahan, he mentioned the same thing. They were not a very good team. They just had a lot of chemistry. And I'll, sh- uh, I'll share a picture here from the book. Um, it actually was never published before. This was straight from the photographer's collection. Uh, wow. but you can see Ron Jaworski there on the left. And he's got his line and guys just kind of goofing around in the jacuzzis. You know, I'm probably sure they're not supposed to put bubbles in the jacuzzi, but just say that remove was, all bandages. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they were just like a fun group, and fans relate to that. Fans love that. Fans love the '93 Phillies and John Cruck and that attitude and that kind of blue collar mentality. And that's what this 1980 team was, and even before. You know, they were starting to get better, 78, 79, and you could see it kind of building, um, and then it kind of, it all came together in 1980. So, yeah, people really got behind them. Of course, they beat the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game, which, you know, will endear you to the city any day of the week. Um, and they really thought they were going to beat the Raiders going into that game, uh, the Super Bowl down in, down in New Orleans, but – you know, they were still a young team and, and they may not have been prepared for kind of all the hoopla surrounding the Super Bowl. And of course, the Raiders had that experience going into it. Yeah. But yeah, did, did very we, similar to did 93. They, did we get blown out in that Super Bowl or was it like close? It was more of a blowout than close. I think it yeah. was like 27, 14, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't, yeah, it was, it was over, uh, it was over pretty quickly. But yeah. it's, you know, I think it's like Brian says, when I hear people talk about that team, they never talk about that Super Bowl. They talk about right. how this game has taken on, especially before we won it a couple years ago, took on this sort of almost mythical uh, status as the most important game in Eagles history. And it, going back to 1960, it probably was until that run three years ago. Yep. Yep, definitely. And we have a picture from it. Part of it was uh, Wilbur Montgomery. Um, they thought he was going to be injured going into the game. And then he he ended up playing. And then on, I think it was the second play from scrimmage, maybe even the first, he broke off a 42-yard touchdown and people were really into it. Um, but also some of the other kind of fun facts, if you may may not have known, um, John Madden, who the John Eagles Madden. lost. John Madden, wow. Uh, not lost. He was, he was uh, commentating the Super Bowl then. He was drafted by the Eagles. Um, so back in the day, he never played, but you know, he was originally drafted. So learning some of these random old players, um, that came in and, and going through the Eagle system was pretty interesting too. Um, he was one of them. Nice. 
Any any favorite any favorite uh, guys on the team? We've talked about owners. We've talked about head coaches. Were there any uh, players that you learned a bit more about that you were um, that that you really enjoyed learning about? Sure, and uh, it's one that Ray Dininger mentions a few times. He mentioned it in his uh, latest memoir book. Uh, but Tim Rosovich, Tim Rosovich. I don't know if you guys know him, but he was a lineman and was crazy. He was quite literally a crazy dude. Um, Diddy tells a story in the book. He goes up to a player and he's like, hey, I heard this story about Tim. Uh, can you tell me if it's true? And start and Ray starts talking and the player's like, yeah, it's true. And Ray's like, well, what about this story? Yeah, it's true. Well, what about this story? Yeah, it's true. This guy would eat glass. He would <laughs> oh, light, yeah. light himself on fire, right? He would you know, stand up on a table in the middle of book binders and throw food. Um, he later became <laughs> stuntman, a stuntman in, in, in Hollywood. So he was an actor afterwards, but he was, you know, a certifiably insane dude mm. who you love when they're on your team. You hate them when they're on another team type sure. guy and um, w- w- didn't care who he was talking to or what he was doing. Um, he was just a goofball. And yeah, it's fun to see those sorts of personalities because, you know, the game's so professionalized nowadays and social media and mm-hmm. what players say and don't say, you don't really have someone really, I guess maybe Marshawn Lynch might be a recent example of someone just doing whatever they want, but this was a great story. Um, uh, Tim Rosovich, I thought, um, but also just learning the old players too, Norm Van Brocklin, of course. And for me, I would say Steve Van Buren, Right. We've heard the name plenty of times. We know he's an Eagles great. Um, I guess I just didn't realize how great he was, you know, in terms of the entire NFL and, you know, how much better he was than most other players um, at the time during those early uh, championships. So um, he was a pretty big one. He's from Honduras, too, uh, which was interesting to learn. And um I like all the guys' haircuts too. They all have these like crew cuts <laughs> from like thirties and forties that you could set your clocks to. And uh, yeah. it was really it's really funny um, learning who they were behind the scenes. So him, uh, Bucko Kilroy. Bucko Kilroy is a great one they talk about in the Eagles documentary that was produced. Um, he was the dirtiest player in football. <laughs> And wow. that's what his teammates said, and the opposing team said it, and they were like, "Yeah, he would he would snap your ankle, and then get up and start laughing, right?" And then they mm. cut to the Bucko Kilroy just going, <laughs> like he still has this maniacal laugh. Well, I mean, if you if you if you if you're named after a Bond villain, you have to break ankles and laugh like that. You know what I yeah. mean? That's kind of yeah. like written. It's law, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was. Um, and, and then he, there was a Time Magazine piece about him that called him, I think, the dirtiest player. Or it said something. So he sued them, not because they called him the dirtiest player, but for some other, like, very inane reason, like they got a number wrong or something else. He very <laughs> admittedly is like, I am the dirtiest player. And ironically, we have a picture here of him playing with his kids um, nice. at the game. Um, also, I believe this guy went to North Catholic as well. Yeah, he's a Philly guy. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. Yep, yep. Right? Um, (laughs) So he made a living being a dirty player, but also he invented the scouting combine. 
he was one of the first kind of scouts for uh, pro football teams, and he had a long uh, executive career with the New England Patriots after his time with the Eagles. So, yeah, he was a dirty player, but he was also a pretty smart guy as well. So there you go, a North boy for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, obviously, so we've got a new Steagle shirt coming out. Just uh, heads up so everybody knows we got one on the way. It's awesome. Uh, we're excited about it. And uh, want you to talk a little bit about uh, that team. We obviously interviewed the author last year of probably the only book about the Steagles, but um, wanted to kind of get your take on that whole uh, on that whole bizarre situation and and what you learned about it as you were researching the book. Sure. Um, and, and that book by uh, Matt Algo is a great book because it, really it, it tells the story of the Steagles, but also gives the context of World War II and the draft and what it was like here in America and in the NFL offices and the war offices, how that all kind of came together to leave us with this team known as the Steagles. Um, but basically, you had all these players that were drafted um, anyone who wasn't drafted, I think they were a 4-H classification, basically meant you were some way disabled, maybe you had a perforated eardrum or, you know, a, an injury that prevented you from service. So you had, like, the least able players playing in the NFL, plus not many of them. Um, and like I said, the Eagles and Steelers at some point swapped franchises. Um, the two owners, um, the Roonies and Bell, were were, were – good friends. So the Steagles didn't have enough players or the Steelers didn't have enough players. The Eagles probably could have fielded their own team in, in 1943, but the Steelers did not. They were thinking of not playing that season at all, but they came to an agreement with the Eagles to say, you know what, we'll share the team. We're going to call them the Phillip Pitt combine. Um, I have a picture to share. Um, they shared the colors, right? You can see here the green uniforms, with that Pittsburgh Steeler yellow socks. Um, but for the most part, since the Eagles had more players, it was more of a Philadelphia team than a Pennsylvania or a Pittsburgh team. Um, I think six of the nine home games were played in Philly, only three in Pittsburgh. Um, but again, it was one of their best seasons. They, they had a winning season that year. The two head coaches had to combine. Um, the Eagles coach... Uh, Greasy Neal and um, Walt Kiesling, who was a very good coach for the uh, Steelers. Um, so you had a team with two coaches, and of course, they didn't get along either. One wanted to run the offense, one wanted to run the defense. They hated each other. The players hated each other because now they have someone from Pittsburgh taking your spot right on the roster. Um, so it's kind of dysfunctional. The whole world's falling apart in World War II, uh, but the Eagles have the best season in their franchise history at the same time. So it's like a really funny uh, story in this hugely tragic story as well. So it's amazing that they made it through the season. It's amazing that they were successful um, by the end of it. Of course, they were happy to be done and, and, and Pittsburgh joined with Chicago in the following year. And the Eagles had their own team in, in, in 44 back to their, you know, losing ways for a couple of decades um, but yeah, that was a huge deal for the city, mostly because it was the first time they had a winning season. So if nothing else, 
even if Philadelphia fans didn't, you know, still saw the team as the Eagles, and not the Steagles. Um, they were happy with a winning team for once. So that was, that was pretty interesting. And then, yeah, they won the championship in 48 49, uh, but then kind of fell off a bit after that too. So it was the start of a good couple of years uh, for the club and the first taste of success after 10 years of, of just kind of middling in the NFL. What did you learn about the uh, Super Bowl run? Did you learn anything that we didn't know or anything that really made you impressed or excited you? Because that was a magical year, obviously. Yep, it, it, it was super fun. And one of the fun parts about the book was we got a lot of photos from fans, right? So we, we you know, we wanted unique photos. We wanted never uh, before seen photos, photos that tell a story. Um, so obviously more recent history, a lot of the fan photos were from that time. So we got a lot of fun you know, close-up photos, fan reactions, um, photos from the parade. Um, now, here's one that we couldn't use. I think, Johnny, you may have taken this picture, actually, uh, but the resolution quite wasn't right. But this was yeah. from the night the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Um, if you recall, we had the store uh, boarded up to prevent any rioting. <laughs> Uh, but right I out mean, front, was, was it, it was boy. It was basically like a a a, a, a construction paper. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> as much as, yes, hidden. Hopefully, people didn't see all the Eagles stuff. Hopefully, but yeah. it it turned into a nice clubhouse for after the Eagles uh, won, and we all were were stuck in Broad Street. But yeah, people uh, surfing cars, everyone just high fiving. Um, so to be honest, I don't know if I learned much more than I already knew, but it was awesome to relive it, to see these photos, um, to find and be able to use pictures from uh, Jake Elliott kicking the field goal and, and people carrying him off the field on a shoulder, um, to um, the parade photos. Uh, and we even have some photos from the Super Bowl. You know, we have a picture of Brandon Graham's sack. We have a picture of um, Zach Ertz, RIP, um, his catch to win the game. We have a picture of the Philly special in there. Um, so just having access to those, I thought was, was pretty awesome because, you know, a lot of the photos we wanted to use, we couldn't, um, you know, they were either too expensive. We couldn't get the rights to them one thing or another. Um, so, um, to be able to use some of these iconic photos in the book uh, was exciting for us. Um, and actually, I did want to share uh, one or two more other photos with you just because um, we had mentioned it. Um, I did have a photo of that coach, Joe Kuharvik, uh, signing that 15-year contract. Uh, and this is a story that, that Johnny knows. Here's the coach on the bottom left. Um, on the far right, is Jerry Woolman, the new owner of the Philly or the Eagles, who loved spending money, uh, whether it was on charities or people. Um, and then in the middle, the Eagles vice president, Johnny, who's that? Uh, that is, um, that's, uh, uh, what's his name from the Flyers? Ed Snyder. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So Ed Snyder was the vice president of the Eagles. And there's oh, wow. a fasc yep, fascinating story. Right that 
Johnny retells on his site, phillysportshistory.com, um, of kind of the breakup. Jerry Woolman was forced to sell the team. He had a chance to keep the team. All he had to do. Well, I think Brian froze up there, um, but uh, I can tell you a little bit more about the story uh, while yeah. I'm waiting for Brian. <laughs> so, uh, Woolman uh, uh, took over the team. Brian, can you hear us? Yes. Yeah. All sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We lost you there for a second. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Tell the story. So, so Woolman had taken over the team, and he was a really neat guy. He had started from absolutely nothing, being out in the. He was he was in coal mining town and really. Yeah. Yeah, just just came from from nothing and built himself up as a businessman. And he did things, you know, at least according to most people, he did things the right way, took care of people, uh, just an overall great dude. And then they signed Kuharich, who I think was coach at Notre Dame. Yes. Um, and then they signed Kuharich. Uh, the team really stinks. Like Brian mentioned earlier, that's when the snowball game happens because we weren't going to get OJ. And uh, which makes you wonder a whole other set of uh, American history could have been different if we had lost that game. But um, but yeah, so so Woolman and Snyder, Woolman takes Snyder under his wing. Snyder was kind of a derelict, kind of going nowhere. Woolman took him under his wing because he knew his dad and said, all right, I'm going to make him vice president of the Eagles and I'm going to lift this young chap up. And um, and then Woolman was building the Hancock Center, I think it was, in Chicago. And they got halfway done with the project and the foundation started to crack. And it's one of those deals where if you're building a skyscraper and things go wrong halfway through, this is 50 years ago. Like now I'm sure they'd be fine. But back then, like you're ruined. Like you can't just tear down a skyscraper and start over. Like you've already spent all that money to, to get the financing for the building. So he basically was like, all right, I'm going to sell all of these assets. And that included the, the Eagles and the Flyers. And he needed uh, Snyder to sign off on selling the flyers to i think it was like a group of q80 businessmen or something and snyder was like nope and he's like dude i he's like i'm gonna be ruined if you don't sign off on this because snyder had a percentage and they needed to sell the mm. whole thing and snyder was like yeah sorry man and it was really like it's a really fascinating story because snyder is kind of this icon in philadelphia but he got his start by according to a lot of sources, doing Woolman dirty by sort of stabbing the guy in the back who gave him the the chance in the first place. Yeah. So yeah, yeah crazy story. So Woolman basically lost everything. And, and he's when Brian talks about fascinating owners, he's certainly one of them. Right. And then, and then he had to sell the team and he eventually sold it Leonard toes, but not before Ed Snyder tried to buy the team uh, with a low ball offer and of course, Woolman was like, "No effing way!" I'm, he just screwed me out of everything, um, and he did. Woolman lost everything. He was a poor man. He went from a, a poor coal mining uh, uh, guy to hundred million dollar properties back down to to rags again. And it, uh, the Woolman story, and yeah, like you said, he did a lot of things the right way. Everyone liked him, and and he was a nice and generous guy, but you know, that's, that's Philly for you, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you just in, in in business in general, you gotta, you know, you can't be too nice of a guy. I don't think, you know. And I, it sounds like he got <laughs> yeah. got got taken for a ride, you know. Yeah, yeah. In his most vulnerable time, his friend just stabbed him in the back. Like business, it was business. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, like I said, Ed Snyder becomes like like one of the probably five most important people in the city for the next fifty years or yeah. forty years. So yeah. yeah, just a just a wild story. Well, what uh, where should we uh, look for this book? Um, where can people go uh, to get the book um, that you guys uh, just recently came out with? Sure. Uh, well, of course you can get it at Shibe. We sell it uh, at the store online at shibesports.com, um, and their autographed copies are available there, exclusive to Shibe. Um, but you can actually basically pick it up anywhere these sorts of Arcadia books are sold. So your local Barnes and Noble, um, your local stores in and around Philly. Um, we've done a couple events already. Uh, one at, I believe it's called a novel idea up in Wayne PA. Um, we're going to do another event at the Morristown uh, Barnes and Noble on December 4th. Uh, so we'll do a book signing and a, a little talk there. Uh, kind of for the holiday season. Uh, but yeah, obviously, of course, you should get it at Shibe. Um, that's the best place to do it. The only place you can get a signed copy. Um, but yeah, hopefully it's it's sold uh, at you know everywhere. And we've also donated a bunch of copies too to local libraries around Philly and different kind of after school programs. Um, and I've been popping them in those little uh, uh, lending libraries you see at the parks, just sneaking them in there with some stickers for the kids. So they're hopefully everywhere. They'll pop up um, anywhere you look for them. Uh, the idea is you'll be able to find the book to buy. So, yeah, I mean, you just go to your local park and just you know start digging through like yeah. hollowed out trees. Yeah, uh, yeah. You Brian, might find one. Yeah, Brian like hides the in the ticket. trees. Yeah, Brian yeah. hides in the hides in the trees and watches the children. <laughs> Are they reading? Are they reading the book? <laughs> Read, children, read. <laughs> no, that's, again, one of the best parts about the book. Obviously, it's a photo book, so it's very accessible. You don't have to get too deep on any one topic. Hopefully, you do. Hopefully, it kind of sparks some ideas, and you're like, oh, I'm going to learn more about Tim Rosovich or Jerry Woman. Um, but it's also organized in a way that you can pick it up at any page, right? Like, you can leave it in the bathroom, pick it up at any point, read a couple captions and be like, oh, that was interesting. And then go back uh, along to your day. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun book to read. It's not a chore. And it, and it didn't feel like that way writing it. It was fun to write it. And we learned a lot writing it. So um, it wasn't like a, a slog of trying to get your ideas down on paper. Luckily, the history has already been written. And of course, Ray Dittinger has done an amazing job. And Ed Mahan, the old photographer, has done an amazing job. And it's really kind of just retelling some of those stories. And, and like Johnny said, the, the Jerry Woolman story and the Stiegel stories. And, you know, they're interesting. It, it's interesting stuff that happened on the field and off the field. Um, and that's the fun part of the book. Yeah, it's a it's a really fun read. It's a it's a breezy read, like you said. You can kind of pick it up wherever uh, wherever you are and just read a few pages if you're just kind of hanging out. And uh, and and definitely, like you guys did a really nice job of capturing uh, the the interesting segments of each 
team, you know, like the, cause there are different, these different eras that we've been talking about over the course of this, there's that 48, 49 stretch, the 60 team, the Vermeil team. And you guys do a really nice job of sort of paying homage in equal measure to each of those teams, because most fans are really familiar starting with, you know, Randall and Reggie. And I think that this book does a great job of kind of tying them into a longer history that goes back 50 years before those guys started. So it's a really uh, well done and, and congratulations on it, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, and a lot yeah, of it man. ties back, you know, there are players today that remind you of players from before their games, just like I said, the 60 season and the 2017 season. So it's, I think it's important to kind of understand that history doesn't always happen in a vacuum. And just like you said, what happens if we didn't throw snowballs at Santa and, we won that game and, or we lost that game and we got OJ Simpson. What a whole different world. Whole world's different. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So these little, yeah. Um, Then that's the fun, the the fun part of of any history book. And that's, um, you know, what we hope to capture here with the Eagles. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brian. This was a ton of fun and uh, yeah, it'll probably be another uh, two hours before I talk to you again. So uh, (laughs) you have to store Thanks for joining us, Brian. I know how, how, how hard it was to get you on. So yes. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So <laughs> thank your agent too. Thank your literary agent for getting us through to you. Yep, my people will be in touch. Thank you guys. All right, sounds good. <laughs> See ya. Bye.